we're all about turning a crappy situation into something positive. A quarter million dollars of credit card I debt. I still remember the day when no one turned up. Throw it in the garbage and start from scratch. I could give myself a chance, so I started something. I mean, I think that counts as from poop to gold. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Divi. Welcome back to From Poop to Gold. I'm Benton Crane, your co-host. And we're here in New York City at the headquarters of Adweek. I'm here with Diana Pearl. Welcome to the show, Diana. Thanks for having me. Now, Diana is the Deputy Brands Editor at Adweek. Tell us what that means, Diana. Um, So basically, I'm sort of second in command, although right now we don't have a brands editor. So um, I, on our brands team, which covers, you know, everything from retail to food and beverage and um, CPG to autos and travel, um, it's a really wide swath of just anything that's a brand. Um, So we cover their marketing and advertising, but also their brand strategy and business and all that sort of thing. Now, the Super Bowl just wrapped up. Yep. It's got to be a busy time for you. Yeah, we always say the Super Bowl is our Super Bowl because obviously it's the biggest night of the year in advertising. So um, we cover, we start covering it back, you know, honestly in November, um, covering what brands are advertising in the Uh game, how long their spots are, what agencies they're working with, and then as you get closer to the game, um, covering the spots themselves. What was your favorite this year? I really love the Hyundai Smart Pack ad with the Boston accents. I'm not from Boston, but I really thought it was funny and cute and just well done, but also did a good job of like highlighting the product. And now I'll definitely remember that Hyundai has that cool parking feature. Yeah, I thought that one was fantastic. I feel like oftentimes, you know, when we lean heavy into the branded side of advertising, sometimes we kind of ignore Mm -hmm. some of the educational pieces of it. And Hyundai really leaned in on making sure they were, you know, both branding and educating at the same time. I thought they did a fantastic job. Totally. Yeah, I love that one. Um, Okay. How did you end up in this position doing what you do? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a funny story. I never thought I was going to be a business reporter ever. Um, I went to Syracuse University for undergrad. I was a magazine journalism major there. Um, So always knew I wanted to be a journalist and and go into magazines. I was on my high school paper, that sort of thing. Um, But I was always very interested in, like, women's interests and more Mm fashion-focused publications. So um, in college, I interned at uh, Rachel Ray's magazine, Mm -hmm. which is, like, a woman's lifestyle publication. Um, And then at Marie Claire... And I uh, had a great relationship with my boss there, so continued freelancing for them my senior year of college, um, and then went working for that, started working for them after graduation. But sort of as it goes in the industry, um, you know, if there's not, they can't just, you know, it's not like in business where they just hire a crop of 30 new mm-hmm. people every year. It's really about, you know, is there a headcount? You know, did someone leave? That sort of thing. So they didn't have the space to hire me on full time. So I went over to L and worked there as a um, full time freelancer doing like production so which isn't really a job that exists in journalism anymore it's like uh, building stories in wordpress Mm -hmm. um and that was only for a few months and then i did the same thing at vogue for a little bit and then went to work at people which was really like my first full-time job Mm -hmm. um where like i got health insurance um which was very important (laughs) that's a a monumental moment yeah yeah it was exciting um especially after you know three different full-time freelance jobs where you're like Mm -hmm. going into the office but not actually you know you're not, you don't technically have a salary and you don't get the benefits, you don't pay vacation, that or sort of thing. Or just a gun for hire. Yeah, yeah. It was it was definitely a relief. And People was amazing. I was there for over three years. Um, honestly thought I was going to stay there for my entire career. Um, but, you know, at a certain point you start getting a little restless. Uh, the company had also been through a big merger, so things were a little stalled in terms of promoting people and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So I just sort, sort of started thinking, okay, what do I want my next step to be? And I had a good friend from Syracuse who worked at Adweek. Um, and I saw a job that they were they had posted online, 
and she was like, I'm happy to pass on your name, and she's a close friend of mine, so, you know, easy to vouch for me, and mm -hmm. I was very comfortable, you know, approaching her about it, um, and I ended up getting the job, and I sort of, you know, initially was like, is this something I really want to do? Like, I, I truly never, ever saw myself doing business journalism, but... You know, I do think at a lot of publications, I, I mean, I loved working in celebrity journalism, but it can be a lot. It's it's a lot. Like, it's a bit of a grind. You're doing a lot of news hits. Um, and it was a great, like, boot camp and a great place to learn. But it's like, I kind of want to do more original reporting, more features, that sort of thing. And I saw an opportunity to do that here, and that's really what it's been. How has the learning curve been? Um, I mean, it definitely was an adjustment, and I have to say I'm so thankful to have had my friend Katie who helped me, um, who's the one who referred me, because it was nice to just have that person coming in that I was already comfortable with, and I could ask her all my silly questions. You know, I had a great boss who hired me here, and she was very, you know, she knew I didn't come from this world and was very open to talking to me and, you know, sort of educating me, and it really is just like an education. Um, you know, you just have to do a lot of reading and really, like, start keeping up with the news in this sector that I had honestly hadn't hugely kept up with before. Um, like I really didn't know a ton about advertising. Um, and now I wouldn't say I'm, you know, an expert the way we had some people we have here who've been covering this for mm -hmm. over a decade, but it's definitely a subject I feel like I, I know my way around now, especially the brand world. You know, I think about we had a CMO summit this week with a bunch of top CMOs from all over mm -hmm. the country. And I think like two years ago I had no idea who any of these people are. And now I feel like I know every major CMO. You know, it's really just learning on the job and like embracing it, you know, so being open to learning, but also just by the nature of you're at your job from, you know, nine to five or nine to six, whatever, every day, you're gonna learn, you're gonna pick up on it um, within time. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. What is your favorite part of the job? Oh, um, I mean, I love, my favorite thing about being a journalist in general um, is that, you know, I feel like I'm a very curious person. I always have questions. I always want to learn more things about people and learn more things about, you know, now companies and brands and events going on in the world. And as a journalist, you get to be the one who finds those answers uh -huh. um, and then sort of, sort of packages them and puts them out into the world. So it's been really cool for me to get to, you know, do deep dives on stories. I have one that I, I'm not going to spoil because I don't know if it'll be out by the time the podcast is out, but um, that's about a company that I think is really fascinating and very interesting, and I'm doing a really big deep dive on them for our next issue of Brand mm -hmm. Week, which is a quarterly magazine um, that we have that focuses exclusively on brands, um, so very up my alley, of course, and that's been so interesting to just talk to not only experts in the space about the brand, but also the people at the brand mm -hmm. and ask them the questions that you want. You know, you've always been curious to get those answers to, and I love doing those deep dives and also finding ways, you know, to bring in my personal interests to Adweek. Um, at People, I covered the Royals, and I, it's a huge personal passion of mine. Um, and all with all the Harry and Meghan news from a few weeks mm -hmm. ago, I did a story about um, Harry and Meghan's personal brand and how they're going to make money and what sort of branded deals might be open to them, um, which was a nice way to sort of marry my People experience with my Adweek experience. Um, and I think it's great here that there's a lot of opportunity to sort of explore the things you're passionate about. So when you think about branding, you're taking this far beyond just company brands, totally. corporate brands. You're taking this into personal brands. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's so, you know, especially in now, and a thing I also love covering here is influencers. I've mm -hmm. been reading, you know, fashion blogs since I was in, you know, I was 18. I was a freshman in college. Um, so it's been super interesting to explore the more business side of that industry and, you know, personal brands are a huge, huge thing now and it's definitely, there's a wide interpretation to brands and obviously we still have to cover, 
you know, the P&Gs and the Unilevers mm -hmm. and all that of the world. Um, and they're, that's a huge, that's super interesting. I mean, those companies play a huge role in how we all live our lives. But um, it's interesting to explore the other definitions of it as well. Um, do you see any kind of up-and-coming movers and shakers that, uh, that our audience should kind of be keeping their eye on in terms of the influencers in this space? Yeah. Um, well, I guess one thing with, like, companies, and it's been a trend for a bit now, but the direct-to-consumer um, world, we have a reporter, um, Anne-Marie Alcantara, who focuses exclusively on direct-to-consumer brands, um, and that's a super interesting I don't even want to call it a trend because I feel like at this point it's here to stay. And this week was actually a pretty monumental one for that category because Casper, mm -hmm. um, the mattress IPO. brand, had their IPO. And it sort of shows kind of what's to come for a lot of these brands. Um, but then we also this week had Harry's, the, the shaving mm -hmm. brand, yep. their their acquisition. They're, they're supposed to be acquired by Edgewell, um, and that was blocked by the FTC. So it was sort of a monumental week for D2C, you know, on both ends because it shows it, it sort of seemed always that the two paths these brands could take were an acquisition by a conglomerate or an IPO. And we saw, you know, okay, IPO happened, mm -hmm. but but this acquisition is blocked, and is that going to, you know, be spell the fate for? for other brands and that sort of thing. So I definitely think those brands um, are shaking things up and mm -hmm. really are, you know, pushing these conglomerates and pushing the more, you know, legacy brands in mm -hmm. a different direction. So I think those are very influential companies. It's really interesting that, you know, it's been several years since Dollar Shave Club had mm -hmm. their massive acquisition, yeah. right? That, you know, a billion dollars. Um, why do you think we haven't seen a ton of movement between that and now? It kind of sounds like things are starting to heat up again where, like you mentioned, Casper and, yeah. and Harry's. Yeah, I think we are sort of, you know, at the dawn maybe of a new era in D2C. There was the first of, like, the Warby Parkers and, mm -hmm. and then, you know, and then like, the Caspers and the Aways. And I do think you're, we're sort of starting to see the cracks. You know, at the end of last year there was that article about Away and the, the company culture yep. there. And there was an article about Everlane and the company culture there with the customer service representatives. And it sort of speaks to, you know, these companies have had this massive growth, but they've also sort of propped themselves up as being these very ethical businesses. A lot of times they have like a cause they're aligned mm -hmm. with, you know, yep. and that sort of thing. And it's it kind of speaks to, you know, is it possible for a business to scale that quickly and still claim to be, you know, ethical and all that sort of thing, you know, is, is that possible? Or are those th two things just completely at odds with one another? Um, so I think that's an interesting question. Diana, many of our listeners are right at the beginning stages of, of launching their company. What would you say to them about the importance of building a brand, not just selling product? Definitely. I mean, I think to build a brand, you know, you need the things like the great visual identity, you need to have the cause or, or just something that people can feel good about, um, you know, whether that's, you know, ethical production or you do things to make your product more sustainable, um, you know, having an element like that is really compelling and gives people a reason to keep coming back and keep buying your product. Um, and I also think keeping things exciting, you know, you can't just come out with one product and expect that to support you forever, um, you know. It might be great for a couple of years yeah, or whatever, but, but then what? But And then some, you know, there will be a competitor who will come in and, you know, copy what you're doing mm -hmm. or you need to sort of constantly be evolving even if you have, you know, one core project, let's, product, excuse me, let's say it's laundry detergent, you know, you can't just rely on that one product. You need to come out with, you know, maybe a, a different sort of detergent or mm -hmm. a detergent that has more, you know, sustainable or, or clean ingredients. 
um, you know, constantly be evolving and constantly give uh, customers a reason to come back to you and see what's going on. And um, also, yeah, just build a brand that people can feel good about supporting. I think that's hugely important, especially with connecting with millennials mm -hmm. and Gen Z. Um, you know, a brand that they're like, I'd rather buy my product from them because they it's do trust. X, Y, Z. Yeah, I trust them. I trust them to do the right thing. Yeah. Anytime we talk about this, I can't help but think about the, the company Snuggie mm -hmm. from, I don't know when it was, like early 2000s or late 90s, whenever it was. Yeah. They sold like $300 million worth of those stupid Snuggie blankets. And yet, you fast forward to today, and they're nowhere. Like, yeah. no one talks about Snuggie. No one hears about Snuggie anymore. And I'm like, man, $300 million, and they couldn't bother to build a brand. Yeah. And like you were saying, you know, build a portfolio of or a family of products that live under that brand. Make the brand trusted. Make the brand remembered. And they didn't bother. Yeah. And so they had their little fun run in the sun, and now they're gone. Yeah. And I think for me, that, you know, when I think about entrepreneurs who are just starting out, the big trap that they can get themselves into if they're not careful is they get those sales coming in the door. Mm -hmm. And then they think, I've made it. Yeah. You know, time to buy the time to buy the Tesla, you know, time to go on vacations, all of that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. And the reality is you've just begun. Yeah. Right. Now you have the long haul of actually building a brand that can last for decades and that people know and trust and remember. Totally. I think viral fame can be a huge boost to a brand, especially at the beginning, but that does not sustain you. You know, it's like a, a cliff that goes up yep. and then rapidly falls down. You know, but you want to get up the mountain and stay there. So That's right. I think you got it. You always have to be building upon it and thinking about what's next and how can we evolve, how can we innovate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so let's come back to you, Diana. Um, the podcast is called From Poop to Gold, right? <laughs> this is all about the obstacles that we have to overcome to find success. Yeah. I want to hear about your journey. Like, what what has been the lowest moment of your journey where you were just so down in the dumps, you didn't know if you were going to make it? What was that moment for you? Yeah, I mean, I think my first year out of college was tough. I talked a little bit about this, but I sort of bounced around a lot for through different full-time freelance jobs. And, you know, the thing about those is that you're you're going to the office working every day like a, a regular employee, but you don't have the benefits. Um, you know, you don't have this, the salary and you're paid on an hourly. Do you even have a guarantee that you'll be back tomorrow? Like, technically, not really. And that's what ended up happening to me. I had a contract as a, as a producer and that ended up just ending because they switched to a new CMS. So they didn't, and they did that, you know, so people could build their own stories, which mm -hmm. I truly think is, is the way the way to do it. The whole system of having someone else produce your things in WordPress is a little funny, um, but it definitely threw me for a loop. And I was someone who, I mean, to be frank, I had done really well in college. I had had internships in New York both summers that I got completely on my own. You know, I'm from Chicago. I, I have no connections in this industry, you know, for my family or anything. So. You know, it, I was someone who I graduated college and I felt really confident in my ability to to do well and, and get a good job. And that really threw me for a loop. Um, and that first it happened on a Friday that I found out that I, you know, I had two weeks left. And that, that Saturday, it was just like I feel like the first 24 hours I was like, it'll be OK. And then you just have that moment of panic. Where you're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, is it going to be OK? Um, but I kind of just put nose to the grind and immediately started applying for jobs, reached okay. out to people I knew. Um, and before I even left uh, that position, I had lined up freelance work at, at Vogue um, that I did. And then I got my interview at People, too, while I was still um, at that, that job at Elle. Um, and 
So I ended up not even spending a single day unemployed because I started at Vogue the day after the next Monday after I left Elle, worked there for about three months, and then got the job at People and started immediately after that as well. So all worked out, but definitely was a really stressful time in yeah, the moment. The, yeah, there, there's a moment there where you're like, oh my goodness. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Um, okay, let's let's talk a little bit about you're living in this world of branding. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Harmon Brothers, of course, is kind of this bridge between the world of branding and the world of direct response. You know, historically, those two worlds have kind of been like polar opposites, right? Yeah. You're either in one camp or you're or you're in the other, and we're always trying to kind of bridge those two worlds and try to bring together the the best of both worlds. My question for you is, you know, we always get to see the big brands mm-hmm. and all the fun things that they do in the Super Bowl. And, um, and the amazing, you know, uh, branded advertising that, that they get to do that, that we all know and love. What about kind of the earlier stage startups who don't have as many resources? Mm-hmm. Can you think of any great examples of smaller companies, smaller brands who are still doing a great, dro- great job about creating that brand, making it memorable, making it fun? making it stick. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one brand that I hugely admire um, is Universal Standard. They are a clothing retailer, and they're all about um, size inclusivity. And I think they are the only brand that creates clothes for women's sizes. I believe it's double zero to size 40. Mm -hmm. Only brand, I think, in the world that does that. Um, And their whole thing is not just about creating these clothes, but also teaching other brands how to create more size-inclusive lines. Um, And it's just something that's insane that, it's taken this long for mm-hmm. you know big brands to really start to pay attention to this. Um, so I think that they've done a great job. They've done some really cool partnerships with bigger brands um, like Adidas, sort of help get their name out there, but also help get their mission out there. And they're you know they're doing just that. They're teaching Adidas how to you know fit clothes for different bodies. It's not just about you know expanding everything by an inch on each side. You know it's about actually going and fitting it and mm-hmm. make so it doesn't so it actually fits you yeah. know different bodies. Um, and they also have done a great job with their retail space. Uh, so, and they're leaning into brick and mortar, and they have really cool um, events. Uh, she was just at our CMO summit, and she said that they'll let anyone use their retail space for free. You can host like your grandmother's 80th birthday party there if you want. But of course, if people are in the store and you're having an event there, they're probably going to shop. They're going to, you know, have these warm feelings about the brand, um, and then you know, go tell their friends about it. So, I think that's such a great idea and a great way to, you know. Oh, that's, Spread that's a, the word. That's but, a really novel yeah. idea where everyone's always, you know, shopping for an event space for, you know, whatever totally. it is. And it can be so expensive. Yeah, 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 crazy expensive. So that's really interesting that they're opening up their space as an event space. Totally. To get people in associating with the brand yeah. and experiencing it. That's neat. Yeah, yeah, I think they're such a cool brand and, like, I so admire what they're doing. And I think they're really playing a huge role in changing the conversation around um, expanded sizing and, and that sort of thing, which is so great. Now, many of our listeners are trying to build brands right now. Mm-hmm. What are the tips that what are the top tips that you would have for somebody who's trying to establish a brand and become memorable? Yeah, for sure. I mean, to be honest, I think good visuals are hugely important right now. You know, we're in the world of the 
Caspers, the Aways, the Warby Parkers, the Everlanes, these, these beautiful brands, you know, they have these mm -hmm. gorgeous websites that like every piece of their branding and their, you know, their advertising is just visually stunning. So I think really investing in great graphic design, you know, something that feels very clean and beautiful. And I'm sure that, you know, our definition of what is great graphic design will continue to evolve and change mm -hmm. over the years. But, you know, something that's really visually appealing, I honestly, like that's how you catch people's attention at first. So I think if you don't have that, it's going to be tough to sort of build up. Um, you know, I also think if you're trying to reach a younger audience, people, young people care a lot about what's the brand's purpose, you know, what, how do they manufacture their products? Mm -hmm. Are they harming the environment? You know, what are they doing to make things better? They want a brand that has, you know, they can feel good about, about shopping there or, or using their product. Um, so I think that's hugely important. Um, and I also think, you know, being very online is important and, you know, doing things, we are very conditioned to, to free shipping nowadays mm -hmm. and things like that, um, which I know can be a really big investment for, for smaller brands. But I do think things like good customer service are really important and, um, you know, explaining every charge and that sort of thing. But at the same time, while online is important, I also think, you know, at least in a retail uh, you're, or you're, if you're selling a product, I do think brick and mortar is becoming more important. And we're seeing, you know, Casper has expanded hugely into brick and mortar. And yep. obviously a, a young brand wouldn't be expanding quite that much, but we're seeing a lot of these brands get more into in-person retail, but they're com developing these compelling retail experiences. Um, it's not just about selling product, it's about yeah, creating that event space and giving people a place to really experience the brand in real life. That definitely needs to be a part of the equation nowadays. Yeah, I've, I've been observing that exact same phenomenon. You know, we've helped several direct-to-consumer brands, and um, it's been interesting to watch as they mature, the natural next step is to start to branch out into yeah. traditional retail, and it broadens their distribution and allows them to reach a much, much larger audience. Totally. Um, but that online presence is such a powerful brand building tool yeah. and such a powerful place to start that, you know, just like Casper or, you know, many other competitors like Purple Mattresses, you know, they start online, build the brand, build the customer space, and then they then they do their totally. their retail push, which seems like a really smart way to do it versus the old way of like yeah. you just have to go straight out into, you know, Walmart or Target or whatever it is. Yeah, and I think obviously it's a lot, there's a lot less overhead to starting yep. a website and starting, you know, just selling products that way versus starting a retail store. So you can sort of do it with less risk. But I do think, you know, even Amazon, which I'm sure Amazon could not have any stores and they would still be incredibly successful with an e-commerce business only. And you know, they're expanding rapidly into stores as well. So yep. I definitely think it's something you can't ignore nowadays. Yeah. Um, okay, what about from a storytelling perspective? What what tips would you have for our listeners who are trying to level up their storytelling game within their brand building efforts? Yeah, I mean, I kind of even go back to what I said before about asking questions. I think the best stories come from when you have a question you want to answer um, and you sort of are, you find that answer and then package it in an I don't know if I want to say attractive way, but in a compelling way mm -hmm. um, and tell that to people, you know, rather than just, you know, reporting, uh, at least from, you know, a journalistic perspective, reporting at a press release. And obviously there's a place for, you know, that sort of breaking news. But I think the best stories come from, you know, there's something that excites you. What are the questions you have about it? Find the answers to those questions and put it together in a way that makes sense, um, in a way that, you know, sort of ties all those elements mm -hmm. together. But I think questions and having interesting questions is the number one. Got it. 
It's been so fun to have you on the show, Diana. How can our listeners follow your work? Yeah, well, I'm at adweek.com, um, so you, but that's where you can read me and all my colleagues' work. Uh -huh. um, and on Twitter, I'm Diana, D-I-A-N-A, Pearl, P-E-A-R-L, underscore, and then on Instagram, it's Diana S. Pearl. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks again for joining us, yeah. Diana. Thanks for having me. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you to our sponsor, Divi. Divi is a business credit card that's made a huge impact on Harmon Brothers. So in the past, we used to just use standard cards, and we'd give them to a few employees, and they'd go out and spend money. And then afterwards, we would find out how much they spent. Sometimes they stayed within budgets, other times they didn't. But with Divi, it's a little bit different. We issue those cards to our employees, and we can manage before the money is spent exactly what their budget is for any given project. So with Divi, it's different. Divi gives you the controls before the money is spent instead of just looking at the damage after the fact. The way it works is you issue a card to all your employees. We do it for every single employee, even including our interns. It's no cost. It's each employee gets a card, and it's no risk because they can't, they can't spend any money from the card unless we allocate money to them to be able to spend it. So we have full controls and full visibility over who is spending and where the money is going. And so this has made a huge impact on us because now we have much tighter controls on our project budgets and it's... Um, it's a lot safer too. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's a lot more secure than sending a whole bunch of employees out with credit cards that you're trying to keep track of. Wait, who has the card now and how much has been spent on that? That's all happening in real time through the app and our finance team just loves it. Yeah, the finance team loves it. We love it because mm -hmm. it gives us peace of mind that the money is actually being controlled and that yeah. there's you know, not wild expenditures going on out there. Yeah. Um, and even our project teams love it. You know, the, the producers and the project managers really appreciate the insights that they get into their project budgets rather than having to wait until after the fact to see what the damage was. So Divi is a free service that... If you're interested in it for your business, you can check them out at getdivi.com forward slash Harmon Brothers. That's get, G-E-T, divi, D-I-V-V-Y, dot com forward slash Harmon Brothers.